You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Singer. He's the Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at Texas Tech University. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great to be here and an honor to be here. Thank you. Can you give us a little background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a, uh, it's actually the capital of Nevada, Carson City, Nevada, but it's a rural town, about uh, 55,000 people. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly older adults. So I, I didn't, you know, I had friends, obviously I interacted, but I interacted a lot more with older adults. And I think that's what sparked my interest in this field of working with this population and just learning from them. And I think from that time as a kid where I grew up from age six on, it kind of just fueled my love of working for old, with older adults and working to, to make their lives better. And that's what I've been doing ever since then. What was the motivation to join this life of academia? Sometimes I second guess that choice, but <laughs> no, I, I love it every day. I think what it brings is it brings flexibility in what I do. And I say that in that I predominantly do research. I love research, but through my research, I can provide, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I provide services. So instead of just a clinical career, though, one of the things I was seeing is that, you know, it's very expensive for care, especially for older adults, aging population, people with chronic illness or terminal illnesses. But I saw through research, we could provide care while doing research, benefiting me, benefiting the whole field, but also to give them free services. So we have a lot of studies that are going on now that provide free services to caregivers of individuals with dementia, advanced cancer, Parkinson's. So it gives me that piece. But I think the other piece that I've always really wanted is the mentorship, to be able to mentor. So I have four graduate students who are PhD graduate students, and I have 15 undergrads in my lab that work with me. And, you know, you you sometimes forget how that first publication or that first talk you give or something, how cool it is. But when you have the the those mentees and you feel that energy, that smile when they get that first publication or their first presentation, like that's that, that's the coolest feeling in the world. So uh, I think that's why I decided to do this is because I get all of those, I get to do all those things. So it, I, I'm very lucky and fortunate. So I was going to ask you, what was your first publication and why that publication? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's very funny you asked that. So at that time I was a post back and I was uh, working in a lab at Columbia and I was I was really interested in older adults, but there wasn't really a lab that at where I was at the time that was working at this. And I had an, uh, George Banana, who's actually, uh, he's my what we call my grandfather later on. So his, Tony Papa was his student and then I was Tony Papa's student, but he introduced me to uh, Kathleen O'Connor and I started to do some research on what's called nocturia. So it's when you go to the bathroom at night more than once. So my first publication is talking about um, related to cues and how we get up at night and we actually use the bathroom, but we don't actually have to go to the bathroom. It's more based off these cues to kind of simplify it. So it's like not anything I'm doing now, but that was my <laughs> first ever pub. But I'll never forget doing that and, and getting that published and clinical gerontologist. I'll never forget that. That was just kind of the highlight of uh, the biggest smile when I got that email. So I never I try to never forget that. It looks like after that moment, you were hooked. It definitely hooked me. So let's transition to one of the work you've been part of. 
uh, medical aid in dying in a, a systemic mm -hmm. review. Could you talk to us about that review and the motivation behind it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'm in a, a unique position. When I started this, I, I was just finishing my PhD and I was working with Elizabeth Loggers at Fred Hutch Cancer Center. And I was thinking about going to postdoc there. And then I ended up getting the job at Texas Tech where I am now. And medical aid and dying is not legal in Texas. So uh, it's 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 not legal. But, you know, I really saw a, I had a passion for it. And I wasn't that I was pro or, or against it. It was more that I just wanted to know more. So I started working with her and she's at a major, you know, research institute. She has years and years of experience in this area. And I started to just learn from her. But when I started to learn, and a lot of the research came out of Oregon and California, but now it's in over 11 states that we have medical aid and dying legalized. You know, Canada has it, many countries have it. And I just wanted to figure out, you know, what what were the pros and cons and understand it more. And what I felt we were really missing, and when I was talking to Elizabeth about this, was we were really missing, you know, people make these arguments if they're against it, like it leads to negative outcomes for the caregivers, you know, long-term into bereavement and everything. And I said, well, we're if that's true, let's just go with that, you know, premise. Then what are the risk or protective factors before the person passes away? So we started to build this kind of what we call pre-medical aid and dying factors and post-medical uh, aid and dying factors. So we have protective factors such as place of death, reduced suffering and burden. Um, and then we have risk factors like ambivalence, preparation for the death. And then we have risk factors that happen after the person utilizes medical aid and dying. So my thought was, let's figure out more about this and kind of start from the ground and see what's out there. And that's why we did this systematic review. And we have other papers that have been coming out trying to understand these risk and protective factors. One thing, just a, a little tangential, but I think is important to bring up here is, you know, a lot of times we think grief starts at the point of somebody dying. You know, when someone dies, that's when grief starts. I, I think it starts way before that. I think there's something called pre-death grief, which we wrote on. Um, and, and that pre-death grief, we can talk about a little bit more, but I think we have an intervention target that can happen before the loved one passes away and how powerful that is that we have the person still living and be able to intervene. And we know pre-death grief is a robust predictive factor for prolonged grief disorder, Holly Priggerson's work, George Manano's work, they've they've found this. Um, so just something to mention where I think those pre, what we call pre-medical aid and dying factors are really, really important um, to understand too, not just post-medical aid and dying. Yeah. So for the sake of this discussion, could you define medical aid in dying? Yeah. So medical aid in dying, and it, it differs a little bit depending on state and on um, country and whatnot. Um, so medical aid in dying is that if you have what's called a terminal condition, so usually we see this around advanced cancer, and you have a prognosis of less than six months to live, and I'm going to use Washington State because I'm more familiar with that. Um, in Washington State, you can have you can go through a process where you can actually have medication that uh, ends your life. And so what this process is, it's a, it's a pretty long process. Actually, you have to go through what's called inquiry, where you have to learn about it. You have to go through a first oral request with a medical doctor and then a second oral request with a medical doctor. And then you have to take the medication on your own. A doctor doesn't administer it. You have to actually administer it. And that is before, that is, again, you have to have less than six months prognosis and everything. So from your research, what are some of the pre-death grief issues around medical aid in dying? Yeah, you know, the protective factors are, you know, people have 
talked about a lot of these studies are qualitative too. So, but they've talked about, you know, it reduces the suffering and burden. Um, they felt like that really was good. That's a protective factor. Or, you know, I have my dissertation was on preparedness. They felt like they could prepare more when they knew this was happening. So um, being able to prepare, we know, is a, a protective factor. So they felt that was protective. There were some risk factors, though, the ambivalence around it. So I don't, you know, even if they were supportive of their loved one, there were people that said, I just wasn't sure. I, I still kind of second guessed myself. But we found that both before the person took the medication and after the person ingested the medication that they still felt some of that ambivalence, excuse me, which is a risk factor. And then things like just things that didn't come up as much, but were still important is less time with the person with the terminal illness. You know, just having, even if it's one or two days, having less time was that feeling of like, I could add more time. And then the last thing that I think is really important um, because we know the role of religiosity and spirituality playing such a protective factor is kind of the moral um, problems with it and going back and forth. Like I know I'm reducing their suffering and this is against like me, my morals and, and or maybe my religion or whatever it might be. And kind of sitting with both of those was really fascinating to read in the literature. One of the things we're trying to look at with Elizabeth Loggers is leading is just trying to look at these patient, these caregivers and these individuals that are going through the process. First, trying to figure out are there barriers to it? We're writing a paper on that now, but also trying to follow these caregivers and trying to figure out, you know, what their experience is like. Because a lot of our research, like I said, and the systematic review highlights this, is very qualitative. Yeah. Um, we don't have these longitudinal studies that we have for prolonged grief disorder that just start before bereavement and go 12, you know, 10 years after. Um, and we need those, especially with it increasing. I mean, organ, I, I don't know if um, a lot of people are aware of this, but Oregon just opened, had a new law where anybody from the United States can go to Oregon and engage in medical aid and dying. So it used to be you had to be a resident of that state, but now oh. they've opened up their borders. So now every person, hypothetically, you know, you have to have less than six months per notice and everything is eligible for a medical aid and dying if they have the other criteria. But that that's that's something we need to know more about it then. We need hmm. to learn more about this. So what does your paper add to the conversation around medical aid in dying? You know, I think it, it's it's where Elizabeth and I were talking. We've been working now for almost, I think, two and a half years or so. We've been talking a lot. It's taking a step back. And it's taking a step back for the field and saying, what are the gaps? What are these risk and protective factors we know? But really, what are the gaps in the field that we need as researchers? And this isn't just for me. This is for the whole field. What do we need to do to kind of continue on and, and to have a, you know, I'm very theory driven. What's my theory? What's backing up my research? Like I could make up something and see if, you know, if it happens. But if I don't, if I have a theory, I can really go after it. We needed a theory. And this is what we tried to build with this theory, a theory that people could utilize and work off of and, and go at different things, such as stigma. You know, stigma's on here. There's a lot of research on stigma. So is that a piece of the puzzle? You know, is is ambivalence? What are we going to do about that? What can we go after? So I think it's a starting point. And I know we've been doing this and research has been done on this, especially in other countries outside of the US for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But I think we needed to take a step back. I really do. Um, and that's what I think this paper adds. With that, we'll take a little break. And our guest is Dr. Jonathan Singer. We'll be right back. 
continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Berman. We continue our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Singer. A part of your research that you were part of uh, is about prolonged grief disorder and bereaved young adults during COVID-19. Uh, how do you conceptualize prolonged grief disorder? Yeah. So prolonged grief disorder, uh, which was added to the uh, DSM, which is what psychologists use this last year in DSM-5-TR, and, you know, the work of Holly Pergerson, Kathy Shear, Chuck Reynolds, they've really, you know, brought this to the forefront of that it's distinct from depression, anxiety, PTSD. It's a distinct experience. And, you know, the main thing when people hear this, it can be very controversial in the field of, you know, why are you diagnosing somebody with prolonged grief disorder? And the key criteria in the DSM, it's after 12 months of the death. And in the ICD, it's six months. So the research has shown that most people, 90 to 95% of people after six months are completely back to where they were before. So we call that resilience. And George Bonanno has shown this in many of his studies. It's it's evident. But there is a small percentage of people, somewhere around 3 to 4%, that you know, after a year, we're talking they are still yearning and longing for their loved one. They are... Um, still feel very attached. And that's part of their process. And we understand that. But when it comes to a year after you're functioning, this is severe. This is really severe grief we're talking about when we would diagnose somebody. You maybe can't, you know, you're having trouble getting out of bed. You aren't reinforced by things that are usually enforcing. For example, I love to play golf. You know, if I said a year after my loved one died, my buddies invite me to a golf trip, which today I'd be like, yeah, let's get on a plane. Let's go do it. Um, and I said, no, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go, you know, and those types of things where it's really affecting my functioning. I can't go to work. I don't enjoy being around my family. We're talking really severe grief here. That's when we diagnose somebody with prolonged grief disorder. And again, that has to happen after a year. Um, it's controversial. And, and I understand the controversy, honestly. I believe everyone has a process. I don't believe in the stages of grief. That, that, you know, I, I believe in that people have a process and that my process is very different than your process. And my process within the loss, within multiple of my mom or dad, like might look very different. But I think what we're talking about is when I see individuals that have prolonged grief disorder, I mean, there is little hope. There's, you know, lack of functioning and that it's really a, a I am so uh, almost like a, not a fixation, but I'm so attached to that person. I can't even get reinforced by anything else. And I'll, I'll, we've even seen this Mary Frances O'Connor from Arizona has actually found, and we're kind of trying to do some of this here is looking at that people's, um, reward center called the nucleus accumbens of the brain, actually with people with prolonged grief disorder is activated. We see it activated for those individuals only when you see a picture of the person, the loved one. Whereas if you see somebody else, like another family member or another person you are very attached to, we don't see that activation. So they're not even being activated by anything else that should be reinforcing, where if I give show you a picture of your family or friends or whoever, you're, you should see activation there. So we're actually seeing changes in the brain. Um, and, and this has been replicated multiple times. So yeah, I think that's how I would define it. 
You know, you referenced Mary Frances O'Connor. Uh, for those who are listening to this show, we've in we interviewed her sometime last year, so you can listen to that conversation too. How was the impact of prolonged disorder on youth or young adults? Yeah, so I've, you know, I've really, um, when I was, so I was on residency at this time at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center, and I was in the thick of it, and I was just watching as restrictions, and it wasn't just at Ohio State, it was all over the country, you know, these restrictions in hospitals, and I study, as I mentioned before, pre-death grief, so um, you know, I, I I yearn or long for the person before their disease. I anticipatory grief piece. I worry about them in the future, and um, and I worry about life without them in the future. Excuse me. And what I was seeing though is all these protective factors that we have that we know of that are robust were gone. So, for example, you know, there are many religions, and and most people after somebody passes away, you have a funeral. You have, you know, you sit with your family, you know, in Judaism, they have sitting Shiva, you know, there's all these different ways that we kind of create through religion, through other things that we create um, protective factors, yeah. but all those are gone, right? Now I can't, now I can't sit around. I'm living in a house where my loved one, it was just me and him or whoever, and now they're not there. Um, and then we also saw in the hospitals, I couldn't have been with the loved one when they died, when they passed away. Yeah. Um, so so not only the isolation piece, but also that end of life process that what we were talking about before, how powerful that is, how important that is for a lot of people to say goodbye, be there with the loved one, make sure they're not suffering. Well, now you're at a point where that wasn't happening during the pandemic in a lot of places. You know, I thought hospitals did as good as they could at the time to try to get people up there, try to get, you know, people there. But there were there were times where we had full restrictions on this. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm sorry, Bema, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Singer. Uh, we talked about, uh, earlier before the break, you, sp you spoke about pre-death grief. And I think during the pandemic, um, that was that really affected a lot of people. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, so pre-death grief, you know, there's a lot of terms used. In, in 2022, um, a colleague of mine, Wendy Lichenthal, and I wrote a systematic review, and Kayla Roberts and a bunch of my colleagues wrote a systematic review to try to define what it is. So let me just more eloquently say, so the overarching term is pre-death grief, and then we have what's called illness-related grief, where I yearn or long for the person before their disease, and then the other piece is the anticipatory grief, I worry and I think about life without the person. So we kind of just built that off of the field. And so um, one of the things that I was seeing when I started to research in this area on prolonged grief disorder is I just didn't understand why we weren't intervening before the person passed away. You know, we still have the person, no matter if they have dementia or advanced cancer, we can do things um, for them to engage in valued activities, valued behaviors with the loved one. Um, so people might be saying to yourself, well, how are they going to do it with somebody with severe dementia? And I kind of always smile at that. And I say, 
what a beautiful, you know, it's a tough process, but what a beautiful time that you can still be with that loved one and whatever activity you really enjoyed with that person, you we can find a way to do that. So here when I got to Texas Tech, I saw all these caregivers who were providing 24-7 care. They were isolated because of the pandemic at home with them. And what I was seeing is high rates of pre-death grief, illness-related grief, anticipatory grief. So we started a program here and we're luckily having a grant funded by the Garrison Family Foundation to provide individual mental health um, therapy to reduce pre-death grief. And um, one of the things that we we utilize is really the principles of behavioral activation of engage in valued activities with the loved ones. So For example, like let's say my wife and I love every night, I love talking to her about, you know, our day and I love having intellectual conversations. She's an academic too, so we love doing this. But then she has dementia, okay? She gets dementia, hopefully not, but let's say she does. And I'm grieving that. I have this illness-related grief. What could we find? What could you do that would still give you similar or the same joy with that person that you could do with them? even though they have dementia and they can't have that intellectual conversation. So I've had people who this has actually happened to where they might just talk to them and they might not get a response, but they talk to them and the person will shake their head or whatever they'll do. Um, what? And then we try to break it down even more. What did you enjoy about the intellectual conversation? Well, I enjoyed being close to them. I enjoyed feeling like we were on the same wavelength. Well, what are other things you could do that do it. So I have a, a participant in our study who they they got a, a one of those tandem bikes. So they ride it together. So they feel like one, you know, and they feel that same joy. So what can we do that can still you can have that meaningful that the meaning in that relationship, even though they have dementia, even though it's hard um, to do. What can you do with that loved one? So I always that's something I really. Um, I said before, like this is this is something I'm really passionate about because the person is still there. How valuable, how cool it is that they're still there. We look at it as such a negative of a terminal illness, which it is, don't get me wrong. But like, what can we find um, to do with the person that we still value and love? And that if I get one smile a day out of that caregiver, dang, I'm happy. I am just <laughs> loving it. And, and it's working. It, it really is working. What We're seeing that. If you think about it, when we look at prolonged grief disorder, they might think, you know, I was so awful at the end or I was a terrible person because they're so burdened. There's so much of that, you know, and I get it. You know, you're providing all this care. So I always go back to if we could have that dialectic of I can hold that. It's really hard to be a caregiver. I'm going through a tough time and I can still engage in valued and activities and love being with that person and find meaning. Dang, how cool is that? Because then when they actually pass away, I can say to myself, man, I am so glad that I was able to still engage till the day that they died, that minute they died, I can still engage in those behaviors with the loved one. I think that is one of the coolest things that we can do. Um, and, and it's looked at as a negative. I get it. it. It is challenging. It is horrible. It is a lot of work. And we can still find that one part of the day that can make you smile. Yeah. You know, I work in hospice and the part I enjoy is meaning making uh, that yeah. uh, pre-death grief, especially if you're working with a family and and their terminally ill loved one, uh, helping them together find meaning. Even if the doctor says you're left with six months or less to live, 
and there's really I see it. So what I really agree <laughs> with what you're saying because once it's done right and the patient dies, the grief does not become as as complicated as normally it would have been. So that's yeah. really powerful stuff there. And and one of the things we're seeing, which is really hard for me, there have been a couple of studies and they need to be replicated, but we're seeing that these family caregivers, because of the stress, because of the burden, not finding meaning, not finding purpose. We know purpose and meaning are huge protective factors. Boyle's research has found that we're finding that they actually have higher rates of um they sorry they have a lower neurocognitive functioning than their counterparts and they're getting alzheimer's and other types of dementia at higher rates than age gender race match controls and we think it's because of the stress of caregiving and that's mm. scary to me cuz that caregiving role is only going to go up. People are living longer because of medical advances. People don't have as much money, though, at the end of life, you know, to, to support a loved one. So I'm really concerned with that stat of what can we do for caregivers to try to reduce that? And I think it goes back to the meaning and purpose that you talked about. I think that's super powerful. So what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, we just to know that we just have a long ways to go in this field. And I think we have a lot to learn. Um, but I think we have a lot of great researchers, great clinicians out there who are are really helping people. Um, and, and so making sure that if you're a caregiver um, or you're even a person with advanced cancer or terminal illness, like there are people out there here for you to help. Um and we're happy to talk. I, I said I love talking. I could talk all day about this stuff. So happy to, to discuss. And we love getting your views. We love the stakeholders' views. So I, I also want to say just thank you so much for having me. I, it, it means a ton for me as a researcher because sometimes, you know, we're published in journals, but you're the ones that get the word out to the people and to. So I, I just want to say thank you for having me. This is This is an honor for me to be here, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being available and sharing your knowledge with our universe. And that really means a lot. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. I really enjoyed this. That was Dr. Jonathan Singer, his assistant professor of clinical psychology at Texas Tech University. Thanks for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.